Hi team and welcome back to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. In this episode, I chat with health psychologist Glenn McIntosh. Glenn is an advocate for what I see as a positive and happiness-centric approach to health, rather than the typical weight-centric approach that has been favoured in the medical world. His work crosses over with movements like health at every size, intuitive eating and empowered eating, and has a pragmatic, evidence-based and person-centric approach to health management. He's the author of the recently released Thin Sanity and the founder of a community support group called the Transformation Support Community, a community in which people can find their own personal health journey that actually works. To find out more about Glenn's new program, the Transformation Support Community, and to get 20% off Glenn's new book, Thin Sanity, just go to my website, cliffharvey.com forward slash thin sanity. Glenn has an infectious energy, and I really enjoyed recording this cast with him. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Gems of Wisdom from Glenn McIntosh, health psychologist. Welcome to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. I'm your host, Cliff Harvey. This song don't give a damn. If the rhymes don't fit with the DJ, quit. This song don't give a damn. You can't sing or dance to it, can't romance to it. This song ain't arrogant, if you don't try and buy it Or if your radio denies it Don't care about what, who got, what's cool on TV Or what spots hot, I forgot I ain't mad at evolution But I stand for revolution Get up, enough is enough Somebody stand up, come on Get up Glenn, I almost feel like I know you. Now, I obviously don't, but we were involved independently within the Recondition Me program. And so mm-hmm. I, I saw you there and it was interesting when the, the photos came out, we were there together on the couch, although we weren't actually ever together in a room. Um, but I, after that, obviously, I, I started looking into your work a lot more, signed up for your emails and um, oh, yeah. you know, really, really appreciate getting those through because it's some really good insights. And that's obviously how we connected for this was you sent out an email about the BMI lie. Yeah. Um, and we started a bit of dialogue there and that sort of <laughs> then led into to this and a, a bit of a discussion about your new book, Thin Sanity. Um, now I've just downloaded it and I've started reading that just over the last couple of days and it, it's really good, but I don't want to tell you know people my story of it. How did that, uh, that, that book and that concept of Thin Sanity come about? Yeah, that's actually a really, really great question. And I don't think anyone's actually asked me that one. Um, and it is good to be it kind seemed of... seemed obvious to me. <laughs> I, I, it's one of those total no-brainers, right? It's like, why did you write the book? Um, yeah. I think, Cliff, like you, you know, you've been practicing working with people for a long time. And I think that, that I've, I've been working with people one-on-one for like tens of thousands of hours and, and supporting my team. I teach over here in Australia. I teach um, the dietitians about this stuff through Dietitians Australia and Sykes through the APS. And I think I, I kind of almost got to a stage where I felt like the ideas were refined enough <laughs> to actually be useful for an individual person. And, 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 and I think that, I think it takes a while for your, your ideas to, to sort of, cause you know, you've got the theory and all the stuff you learn and the research on one side, and then you've got what works for a real person when the rubber hits the road in their day to day life on the other. And I think it came to a point where I would talked to enough people, I'd listened to enough people to figure out what ideas and what strategies worked in real life. And yeah. Really, that the title of the book, Thin Sanity, is what I think probably 95% of my clients come to see me for. And it's just this crazy obsession with thinness that almost all of us, particularly women, but all of us, have with being thinner. No matter what size or shape we are, we all tend to want to be thinner. And, and if, of course, it's really important to, you know, I'm a health psychologist to take care of your health and your relationship with food and physical activity. But sometimes that relentless obsession with being thinner actually undermines having a healthy relationship with food and movement and your body and actually living your best life. 
I also sort of think Sandy is a bit of a play on words because Einstein said, you know, that quote definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And that's what I think we do with weight loss diets. You know, you would know from your research that we, we look at so many diets have what, what the researchers call the Nike swoosh of weight loss, which is that short term weight loss and then regained within a couple of years. And then you gain it back with interest after you know within five years and you, you sort of your weight ends up then you go on another diet and it just keeps going up and up and up and i say to people it's like your weight uh ends up your weight chart looks like you would want your share chart to look yeah. <laughs> it just sort of you know there's these little periods of down but then it just goes up and up but that's not what you <laughs> want to see on the scales and and so so the the idea of of the book is to help people find a new way forward if you've done three four five different weight loss diets and you haven't found long-term success it's a, a, a different and probably for a lot of people a radically different approach to taking care of yourself yeah so in that sort of context how how closely does this sort of align with say haze or with you know intuitive eating or as my uh, my colleague michelle yandel would would put it empowered eating like what's that crossover there is it different is it a similar sort of spin on it yeah, that, that is an excellent question, Cliff, because it's, um, and I'm in a really weird space. And I think you probably know this, that <laughs> I, um, so much of my work is, um, is based on non-dieting health at every size, intuitive eating, uh, research. And, yeah. you know, I think we have a ton of research to show that diets are generally ineffective for most people at best and and harmful at worst and so I, I absolutely agree with the health at every size camp on that um and the the book is full of intuitive eating so there's a, so there's a whole step on there um step four making peace with food that's all about intuitive eating there's a whole step on um having a joyful relationship with movement and there's there's a lot on cultivating a positive body image and and so my work is very strongly influenced by health at every size principles. But why I end up in a weird space is I think that the, the weight loss camp sort of see me as a bit um, sort of too body positive and like, what are you doing this non-diet approach? But because my approach is not absolutely and radically health at every size, it's, 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 I would say it's an approach that follows uh, evidence over an ideology and, 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 and that helps the person understand nuances rather than giving them blanket sort of absolute one size fits all ideas. Because I, I don't subscribe completely to that health at every size approach, I'm hugely criticized by the health at every size camp. So I kind of feel like I get it from, from both angles, but I kind of feel comfortable with that because I feel like my, my work is based on solid science and what works for real people in real life. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. You say that because I wouldn't have actually expected that from the outside. Obviously I don't see the, any criticism you, you receive. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting because my experience as a clinical nutritionist really mirrors a lot of that, you know, people see a nutritionist and they expect that I would be, you know, prescribing rigid diets, uh, you know, taking that sort of weight focused approach and, and being really fixated on that. Now, when I started, you know, like I say, 23 odd years ago, I didn't really know. I didn't even know if it was around. I certainly didn't know about haze or intuitive eating or anything, but I, I did know given my my experience as I started working in the industry that taking a weight focused approach simply didn't work mm -hmm. and having that rigidity of of diet didn't work yep and so you know from a very early stage in my career I was sort of working on the idea that people would generally come in especially when I was a younger practitioner now I kind of work with complex conditions but back in the day you know like most people you you cut your teeth on weight loss and people would come in wanting to achieve a certain weight and I would always sort of work with the client to, to look at form following function. You know, let's focus on your journey of health, not my journey of health. Let's focus on your journey of health. Mm 
and not what I think you should be doing. But if we focus on that and if we can change your behaviors well, or if you can change your behaviors with a bit of, you know, offhand sort of guidance from me, mm-hmm. then your body will inevitably take on a shape that is conducive to health or you will be healthy and it will take on whatever shape that is. And it was seen as a little bit of a radical approach. And yes. I find it yeah, for way back then, right? Totally. Um, but because I have been involved in research on low carb diets and keto diets, and because I'm, you know, a nutritionist and I do, you know, speak fairly plainly, I think about some of the dangers that we see with excessive adiposity, which is the way I sort of frame it. Yep. Um, I get a, a lot of kickback from, you know, the, the haze and intuitive eating crowd because they basically, you know, they'll see my book, the carb appropriate diet. And they'll say, well, you're talking about diet. That's a bad thing. Or, you know, in, in our research, we have to have exclusions and inclusions around certain parameters of BMI, but that's just the, you know, population based thing that we need to have. Um, and so for all these various reasons, people can kind of pick apart what you're doing without, I think, seeing the fact that a lot of us out there are really trying to have a client centric approach and, a, and not a weight focused approach, a health focused client centric approach. Um, would that sort of mirror where your sort of experience as well? It does mirror my experience. And I think that, um, what do I want to say there? I think that our little conversation we had around my BMI lie, um, (laughs) or it was a section of the audio book. That's what it was. It was that section of the audio book, the BMI lie. And um, I think we had a wonderful conversation around that because we were able to talk on a research basis. Like what research do you understand? What research do I understand? We're able to talk about, um, you know, the, the limitations of my idea, but also the strengths of it. And we were able to just have a, a good collegial discussion. And, yeah. and my fear is, and I'm sure, you, you know, you, you're experiencing a similar thing, is that there is, I feel, a, a, a high level of animosity and, and the, in the health at every size, a certain section of the health at every size community. And it, it becomes very adversarial. And when it becomes very adversarial that people do, um, you know, what you've experienced and what I certainly experience is that people uh, criticize the the headline without reading the whole article. Yeah. And, and that, what that means, I think for us as health professionals is that we, we actually lose our ability to have quality discussions. We're not trying to understand about each other's research or each other's experiences with clients. And sometimes we as health professionals are actually even ignoring our clients. You know, our clients are coming in saying, hey, I'm concerned about this. And we're saying, no, that doesn't fit our model. So, you know, yeah. whenever we're, we're, you know, too uh, absolutist or too sure about ourselves or too fixed in our approach, I think we, we lose our ability to, to have great conversations with each other and learn from each other. And we lose our ability to better support our, our people. So, so there is actually a section in at the end of the book that you'll read that I call becoming a body positive badass. And the whole section is like, you know, once you learn about non-diet and intuitive eating and the harm that diet culture and the thin ideal does to society. And once you start to experience the benefits of following a non-diet approach, you often then want to share that with everyone. Uh, And and so I write a whole section on how to do that without being an asshole. That's awesome. I mean, that's, it's such an interesting and pragmatic place to be because I don't think that there is necessarily a contradiction between, you know, reviling against diet culture. We, we know we live in a pretty poor food environment. We know that we have a media driven social environment that is really negative and particularly negative with respect to, to body image. We've all seen it. We've experienced it. Most people who got into nutrition like myself and a lot of my colleagues, a lot of it was because of body dysmorphia. Yep. You know, I I was a skinny, weak kid who wanted to be a big, strong dude. Mm -hmm. But I became obsessed with what I was eating. Yeah. And it it wasn't healthy. And I, I see that parallel across a lot of people. But we can revile against that negative diet culture but still, I think, be aware of the health ramifications of being in a negative food environment and just 
allowing that to, to be sort of carte blanche and having that, have to be very careful about how I frame this, that situation of excess adiposity in the body, which is, you know, incredibly inflammatory and has, uh, you know, a very high association with a whole bunch of really negative health outcomes long term. Yeah, and I think it's, you used a, a very interesting and I think a very powerful word there, Cliff, is uh, pragmatism, practicality, <laughs> you know, and, and I think that, that when you base your work on either the ideal of everyone must lose weight or the, the, the opposite ideal of no one, you know, weight is completely unimportant, then you, you lose the ability to see reality. And I think you would you know, be interested to hear your thoughts, Cliff, if, if, if you agree that I think that, that we do, I, I believe we have a lot of research to, the, to say that the, the weight health relationship is exaggerated. There are a lot of people out there who are living in different shaped and sized bodies that are actually healthy and certainly being in a BMI of above 25 isn't necessarily the crash cart. Um, we, we, you know, if you talk about that example of your client and helping them develop healthy habits that work for them, if we yeah. do that with 100 of our clients, we still end up with 100 different size and shape bodies. So we have to have an appreciation for that. Um, but we also have to understand there is a medical reality that when you get to, you know, if you have excess adiposity, there are going to be health impacts of that. So I think that just because the health weight relationship is probably blown out of proportion by diet culture and manipulated to get us to buy diets that don't work, that doesn't mean that there isn't a relationship between weight and health. Um, and I think that, you know, the health at every size um, advocates, and I, I agree with this, would, would present some pretty good research to show in that BMI 30 to 40 range, you can actually improve your, your health. And I'm talking not only mental health, but physical health, blood sugar, blood pressure, just by focusing on healthy habits. So sometimes you can focus on healthy habits, and that's actually going to be a better way to achieve health than through focusing on weight loss. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time, we have to also acknowledge that probably the, the limitations of that research, because that health at every size research was, um, was conducted with the, the same type of BMI inclusions, exclusions as your research. And it's typically done in people of BMI 30 to 40. Um, we have to acknowledge that that even though I kind of favor a non-diet approach with all of my clients, we don't have a lot of research uh, on, or actually any, you know, published peer reviewed research on the health at every size approach for people who have a BMI of above 40, which is of course, when we know speaking in generalities that that, that risk of, of health problems and, and um, morbidity and mortality actually really jumps right up. So, so I, I think, yeah, sorry, Cliff. No, no, absolutely. I agree with you. I think, you know, obviously BMI is a very blunt instrument and that's why it's very flawed. You know, and I think, again, this goes back to the very earliest days of my practice. I, you know, was very aware of that because I was working with top level athletes and they were all classified as obese. You know, many of the, the best athletes um, throughout the 20th century were not allowed to go away and serve in the wars because they were classified as obese. So that in Great. itself tells us that it's, it's not accurate. It's not always, it's very Eurocentric as well, because, uh, you know, here in New Zealand, a lot of Māori and Pacifica people are naturally going to be in the overweight category just as their natural state anyway. Yeah. And I think that we have to acknowledge those things. And then, then if you're trying to be into a BMI or a weight or shape or size that you're not, then you're always going to run into trouble. Exactly. Um, however, I do think that when we look at the research, we also need to tease out a, a lot of the nuances. And this is where, you know, our sort of discussion started via email, particularly when we're looking at the, you know, the study by Flegel and colleagues, and that was refuted, uh, I think, very well by Hugh and colleagues when they showed that you could basically eliminate any of those purported positive effects of an increase in adiposity uh, because of reverse causation. So people who were smokers, people who had wasting conditions, 
Um, and particularly if you can combine that with removing the, the healthy people in the you know, purported overweight category who are overweight, not because of adiposity, but because of muscle mass, you start to see quite a different picture. But then that also changes the vernacular. And so that's why in what I do as a researcher, I'm often very clear on saying we're talking about, you know, unhealthily excessive adiposity not weight, not shape, not size, because those things are somewhat inconsequential when it comes to, to health. Mm -hmm. um, we also certainly see, I don't think it's common, I don't think it's as common as some Hayes practitioners say, but I think we still also see people who are metabolically healthy um, despite being in those higher weight categories. And people who are metabolically unhealthy despite being in the, the lower weight categories. Oh, and that is, that's really interesting because that's often ignored. And, you know, we, we certainly see, yes, we see a raft of health ramifications from being excessively adipose, but, you know, we also see a lot of very serious comorbidities when people are in those underweight categories, because typically that's, you know, a function of having an illness or it's a function of having some type of you know, negative behavioral pattern, maybe around food, um, you know, disordered eating or, or just under fueling. And, and maybe even um, sometimes we, you know, there is some research to show that people in smaller bodies, because I think we should talk here, Cliff, about weight stigma, because yeah. weight stigma, uh, that, you know, that bias of a person based on their shape and size affects healthcare for everyone. What we might see is somebody who has no significant, say, metabolic health issues, go to their doctor and be told they need to lose weight because they're in a, a, a BMI category that's too high when there's actually no medical indication. Yeah. Or we might see someone who's in the quote-unquote normal BMI category not get screened for things like diabetes because they don't look like someone who is, is, over, is you know, should have those problems. And I think that... One thing that, that comes to my mind when we talk about the, um, the Flegel study and the nuances and the limitations of it is, is this harmful effect of weight stigma. So yeah. we know that weight stigma, independent of, so I'm not talking about being a high BMI, I'm talking about feeling as though you don't fit in or being um, discriminated against because of your size is actually really unhealthy. So we know that yeah. people who experience weight stigma, they're less likely to go to the doctor because they, 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 they're worried about getting judged. They tend to, um, to have high rates of mental health conditions. Um, it, it actually affects uh, educational attainment and, and employment. And when we talk about all these it's things, not. I think that, that and, and I suppose this is something that you do in your clinical practice and, and I do as well and, and try and do in the book is actually say, you know what, let's not assume that weight is the gatekeeper to health and happiness and success, but yeah. then let's not assume it's completely unimportant. Let's do what we should all do in clinical practice. And if someone reads the book, what, what I help them do um, for themselves is identify what place weight should have in your life. Yeah. You know, make sure it doesn't get too big for its boots and make sure that if it is something that's important to you, it's not ignored. And I think that's what you do. You have to do if you're an individual, you have to go, okay, we live in this weight bias society. That's going to tell me if I, if I'm not basically a stick figure as a woman, if I'm not, if my body shape isn't the shape of a prepubescent girl, you know, then, then I need to change it. So we, we, we need to, to acknowledge that we all have this natural weight bias. Try and unhook from that and then we're more empowered to make that decision. Okay, well, how much time and energy do I spend trying to, to manage my weight? And then what type of relationship with food and physical movement do I want to have? And how does that fit into the, you know, that overarching thing that is beyond eating, exercise, body image, but my whole life? Yeah, that, that's really interesting and you, I, I think you hit on a really powerful angle of this that a lot of practitioners don't think enough about and that is that BMI is incredibly useful as a population tool in research mm -hmm. because often we don't have the opportunity to to do anthropometry um, or, or we need a broad picture of what might be happening 
But that's the key. It's what might be happening. It's not what is happening. So on a clinical level, when we're working with individuals, I think the onus is, is on us to look deeper, you know, and I would never look at someone's weight and assume that they had any type of condition based on that. It would then be based on what are their bloods telling me? You know, what are their other indicators telling me? How do we create a really clear picture of what's going on for this person? Mm-hmm. And even then, we don't focus on the markers per se, we focus on health and the markers fall into line. You know, you focus on health and the body will take on a form that is conducive to health and performance for that person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think if I have a, a weird analogy that I often throw out there and sometimes makes people look at me like I've got two heads, but <laughs> the, way, the way that I see it is if you, like say if you go to the dog park, you are going okay. to see a whole <laughs> different variety of shapes and sizes of dogs. Yeah. And, you know, if you are a, uh, you know, you're going to see poodles and Labradors and Mastiffs. And if you are a Mastiff trying to look like a toy poodle, then you're always going to run into trouble. The yeah. best thing that we can do is if you're a Mastiff is be the happiest healthiest mastiff hope you you know your, your family feeds you well gives you enough social connection so you go play with the other dogs walks you regularly and then you're naturally going to like you say form follows function have that that weight and size and shape that is just right for you and the, the cool thing is cliff is that you know like you said when we remove the hyper focus on the scales and and put the focus back on overall health and well-being actually focus on cutting out the middleman of focusing on health and well-being and living a healthy lifestyle you actually don't have to worry about weight at all because it just takes care of itself yeah exactly the weight you might reach might not be what society uh would prescribe that you should reach based on a magazine or based on what the, the you know that that broad measure of bmi would say and so that's then up to you to go hey hold up I'm going to develop my own body standards, my own standards for what is healthy based on individualized medical advice for me and not based on what I see on Facebook and Instagram or read in the media or these, you know, this, this culture of diet and fashion that is invested in me hating my body. And I'm going to develop my own standards for beauty and attractiveness. Yeah. I mean, that's such a great analogy. And I remember talking, I think I was talking with my partner, Bella, and just had this epiphany that if an alien landed on Earth and saw humans, I'm sure they would assume that a lot of those humans are different species. You know, if you if you put me next to Valerie Adams, you would not think we're the same species. I'm, you know, a, a relatively normal sized white dude. Valerie Adams is a amazing athletic large polynesian woman in the best you know sense of of large a big muscular great athlete we don't look the same yeah and i I agree and and that's great that's cool that and i think that's a that makes me really happy to hear you say that's cool because I think in society, we don't know that that's cool. And sometimes the, you know, we, we don't necessarily see a diversity of sh- sizes and shapes in our social media feeds, on our television. So we do get, and we get this from a very young age, we internalise this from our, our, our families. And, uh, you know, I think of it like, you know, I talk about thin sanity and I think of us like fish swimming in an ocean of thin sanity. You know, we just, it's part of our, our society that a lot of us grow up feeling like our bodies aren't cool and you think yeah. about the effect that has on you psychologically and i mean you mentioned it yourself cliff you know feeling like you had to be a certain way created a really kind of unhealthy relationship with food and exercise um and and so if we can help create a society where we we embrace the diversity of shapes and sizes i think that's super cool and it's super good for all of our mental health and i don't think there's any negative going to be any negative health impacts of this because when you're hating your body you can't hate your body healthy no you know that will keep you going for a short term until you don't hate it as much and then you'll revert or it's going to put you in that dieting space 
overtraining, unsustainable things that are just going to make you bounce back. So, so that the, the better we feel in our bodies, the more we love our bodies, uh, the more able we are to actually create a good relationship with food and, and moving our bodies and other ways of, of caring for ourselves. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's an interesting idea about, you know, our, our norms of, of weight and the norms of the aesthetic. When I came back from Canada, I, I was up there for about five years, moved back in around 2010. Um, it was when CrossFit was just sort of taking off. Right. Yep, and yep. although I think a lot of people have some negative perceptions of CrossFit, I saw a really interesting thing. A lot of the clients that I was working with who had, you know, disordered eating and, and diagnosed sort of um, eating disorders and things hmm. got a lot out of being involved in the CrossFit community because it started to shift their perspective away from I must be skinny to I want to be strong. And, and maybe the, I need to feed myself in order to train rather than starve myself in order to be thin. Exactly. And one thing that I noticed resulting from that was there was a lot of real empowerment there. And I think that has become more of the norm where it's, it's you know, women are um, more comfortable with being, being strong and, and holding some muscle and things like that. Mm -hmm. But then we butt up against the, I guess, the patriarchy where that's not seen as being feminine. And so we had those types of ideals. Now I want to spin into something a little bit different from that, which is we're two white middle-aged dudes talking about this and what is really a female dominated, you know, <laughs> discussion. Weird, yeah, totally. So how do you, as you know, you're held up as being an expert in this space and I, I'd fully agree with that. And a lot of my, you know, female colleagues and things are, are, are followers of yours and they think your, your work is really awesome as do I, but how do you see your place in what is really a, a female centric market? And are you at all concerned about being, I guess, the male savior sort of archetype? Look, it's a really interesting one because I think it is an, it, it is a, and I feel this sometimes it's an awkward space being a, a man in a, and look, I have a lot of privileges. I'm a white man, uh, from a, a, a fairly good socioeconomic background. So I've got all the things. I don't have a lot of th this discrimination to talk through from personal experience. And, 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 and I think that, you know, the body positive movement is absolutely intertwined with thin ideal and um, feminism and dismantling the, the patriarchy. And the reason why I don't worry too much about this is because I think that as a health practitioner uh, and as an advocate of any type, you were, and this is what I say to all of my, my, um, my psychs and my dietitians that I mentor and, and all of the, the, the health professionals is you're going to get judged anyway. Yeah. So when I was young, I got judged by my clients because I was too young and <laughs> I had to, I'm sorry to say, I'm going to be a better psychologist in 15 years, even if I don't learn anymore. <laughs> you know? and, and, and I have, you know, some of uh, you know the, the psychologists that I mentor are thin. If they're thin, they're going to get a certain amount of people living in larger bodies that say, "Oh, I, you know, they're never going to get it because they're thin." If you're fat, you're going to get a certain amount of your clients who are going to say, "Well, they're fat. They don't know how to change their bodies." And so we're, we're going to get judged either way. Yeah. And, and and what I say is that my value is absolutely not in my lived experience. A lot of people have value, you know, that they have a, 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 per, a more personal understanding of these challenges. Um, my value to people is in the studies I've read and the, the literally tens of thousands of conversations I've had with people. And I say that, you know, as a, 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 a middle-aged man who is in a, a pretty thin body, I, I understand this as well as anyone like me could. And, yeah. and again, I think that, that I think about it on a practical level. You know, we have um, data from our programs showing that we improve levels of intuitive eating. Uh, we, ha we cultivate a more positive body image. We improve self-esteem and mental health. We improve exercise confidence, uh, all of the things that we would want to do. So in a sense, it's like, who am I as the catalyst to, to do that? Who cares? 
it actually doesn't matter who I am. I've got data to show that I help people. I sit in a room every day and help people. I get great reviews from the book. Uh, we've, you know, we've got online programs and it's just so cool to, to, to know that they're benefiting people. So I think, who cares? Yeah, but I mean, the proof of the pudding's in the eating, right? 100%. And, and look, people are going to judge. And, and I think that, um, as I've said to you, sometimes I think sometimes that that adversarial hypercritical uh, nature that can exist in certain elements of the body positive movement um, irks me at times and frustrates me at times because I think people are criticizing the title without reading the whole book. Um, and I do, I even find Cliff, this happens quite often if someone is brave enough to read my book or listen to my podcast from the pure health at every size community they often go oh that's kind of the way i work that's kind of what i think this is not as bad as i thought it was or i actually really like it um so but i also understand that the body positive movement, the health at every size community is about more than healthcare. It's a political movement. And to yeah. be a political movement and create political change, you need a degree of anger and frustration and uh, adversarial, you know, and you need those people at the, at the front of that community who are, um, who are flying the flag and taking everyone to task. And I would absolutely you know, I, I'm so thankful for the body positive community one, because even though I don't agree necessarily with, with the absolute purists, their ideas support my clients. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that they have, you know, my practice has improved a great deal because of them. So when I'm criticized, it's up to me to, to really go, okay, well, some of that, does that apply? And sometimes the answer is no, and yeah. I can just let it slide off. And sometimes the answer is yes. And I need to refine my practice. Yeah, and it's, so, it's, a, it's a great point because I think that a lot of the, the criticism stems from, to some degree, the, the outrage culture that we have. 100%. Which really is, to, to my mind, an expression of the, the hyper-aggressive sort of media-saturated market that caused a lot of this problem with diet culture anyway. It's sort of the same thing but spinning a different angle. And I think within that, there can be some pragmatism, you know, um, for example, I will often be criticized as a lot of us are for being, uh, you know, a person in a position of privilege, like yourself, a white middle-aged male who has come from, you know, not an affluent background, but a relatively comfortable background. Yep. And it's interesting because um, I do some work with the Romani community in New Zealand. I'm, I'm Romani on my mum's side. And so this is a, you know, a, a very discriminated against disenfranchised minority, probably one of the most, or if not the most systemically persecuted ethnicity in history. And yet it's interesting because a lot of, a lot of us, particularly in a country like New Zealand, we're very privileged because our forebears moved out here to get away from that kind of stuff. And we grew up, you know, white. And so it's interesting because I can be active on behalf of those who aren't privileged like myself while still recognizing that I'm privileged. You know, I can sort of feel maybe some, some pain, I guess, for the trauma that our forebears and my ancestors, you know, even very recent ancestors might've gone through, but that's not my lived experience. And so those two things can be kind of true. I can recognize my privilege while also being aware of and active on behalf of others, you know, within my community who might not have those advantages. Absolutely. Um, and so again, it comes down to pragmatism, right? It comes down to pragmatism. And I think practically uh, there is no us and them. Yeah, yeah. You know? I think that so many, including absolutely myself, so many health practitioners started in a weight centric, you know, diet focused approach. And so, you know, there's the, and those guys, you know, most of those, say, if you talk about health professionals, they're not these evil, um, you know, people who are just trying to prey on people's desires and, you know, take all of their money and line their pockets. It's if we are going to be practical about finding a solution, it is going to take 
everybody to to work together and and that includes media that includes health professionals that includes uh, you know weight centric and health at every size practitioners talking communicating with each other uh, there you know I, I, there is no us and them we're all no. in we're all in this together and and there are no things that are absolutely good or evil you know it's a discussion i have a lot you know more in the sort of philosophical realm when i'm having you know in depth rabbit hole discussions with people late at night um, but th there is no absolute good or evil and i think we can often bring that down to the health context you know we had a really interesting discussion with my students where um, there were some advocates of tracking calorie tracking macro tracking others who were dead set against it because you know they were saying it can lead to or not ca it can they're saying it leads to eating disorders you know you know weight focused negative behaviors all these types of things and we really had to, to work through that as a discussion because from my point of view, I can certainly see that calorie tracking, macro tracking, those types of things can be incredibly harmful. On the other hand, when used as a tool, as a check-in occasionally, it can be incredibly helpful for some people. And I know practitioners and, and you know, end users who get a lot of value out of that because it just gives them a little bit of extra information. So really, it's, I think a lot of it is not about the tool it's about what's the background, what's the culture, the environment, how has that then created our psychosocial milieu? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean in terms of how we then go on and see ourselves? Um, because, you know, a lot of us who have been through maybe a certain thing, we've come to a point of some degree of self-reflection and, and being very comfortable within ourselves. We're not triggered by that kind of stuff. But some people are, and we need to also be very respectful that that's the case. And that might be driving, you know, a lot of negativity for them. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think whether it's, you know, us talking about ourselves as, as health professionals and practitioners or researchers, or it's an, an individual person looking to, to better take care of their health, it really is about understanding that there is no one size fits all. And it is about, we need to be, I think you used a good word there, reflective um, as health practitioners. But if you're your own person, you know, for, on your own health journey, you need to be reflective and yeah. not do stuff that's dumb for you blindly <laughs> because you think it's going to get you some short-term results or some weight loss. But, but also be willing to, to learn more about yourself and what really is helpful and harmful to you because it's you know when you talk about the different tools it's about matching the tool to the person exactly uh, and this, that's interesting because i'll tell you a little story here if that's okay like a lot of people when i started seeing the emerging health coach market i saw a lot of health coaches out there and to me not all certainly not all there are some great health coaches out there there are many many great health coaches out there but at least some that I saw, it appeared to be that it was kind of like a backdoor entry into health practice. Maybe they, they hadn't really studied to be a nutritionist. They'd done a little weekend course or something. Yep. We're calling themselves a health coach. Yep. And so I wasn't really that enamored with the field. However, when I um, became aware through some of my colleagues that, you know, that's not really what health coaching is. Health coaching is evidence-based and it's based on behavioral and positive psychology. And what it really is, is a patient or customer-centric journey, not a top-down practitioner approach that really appealed to me because I think any of us who are successful in practice have come to that realization. We can't just be the dictatorial practitioner saying, I'm a doctor of nutrition, so I can tell you exactly what to do because it's not going to work. Totally. And so I studied health coaching and, you know, did, did some extra upskilling in it. And it, it really helped to bring together a lot of the things that I had been probably inadvertently doing in practice anyway, mm -hmm. but it provided a framework for it. And it was so interesting because this, I think, is, is where a lot of this stuff is starting to converge around, you know, thin sanity, you know, this kind of stuff with the, the weight focus that we see. That's because often we're not taking the true client-centric approach. When we do, it cuts through a lot of that noise. 100%. 100%. And so 
I think of thin sanity as, and I say in the book, it's, it's not for me to show you the approach. It's for me to help you understand the approaches that are there for you. And in the book, we actually help the person understand what will work for them, discard what won't work for them. And it actually becomes, it's not a program. It's a, it's a way for them to understand their own journey. I think that's what we, all need to do so you, that the, the book really am i sort of right in assuming the book kind of sets the the foundations for this and helps people to find their own path yep and then you you've also got a program that you've is it just released or you're releasing coming up no so we've just released it we've literally had online programs for i think six or seven years now and we've about mid last year we bit the bullet and we really did some hard reflection and thought what do people need in order to transform and and so we bundled all of our online programs up into to one online program so people have access to all of our online programs all of our audio programs but one thing that we know and you'll know this Cliff, and everyone listening to this will know this is if you want to make serious changes to your habits, if you want to make changes that last, you need close contact support. You need regular support. It helps you to build the momentum in your changes. It helps you to overcome those inevitable setbacks that are part of the process of making progress. No matter what habits you're trying to change, it helps you overcome those and it helps you create lifelong habits. So, so very, very simply, uh, you know, the book is an awesome self-help guide. And there, I was having a conversation with, um, with someone who had bought the book, uh, I think yesterday. And, um, and I said, I just said to her, look, if she was working her way through the book, doing the little activities and everything and loving it. And I said, if you can work through this whole book by yourself, just do that. If not, do the transformation support community, which is basically the book with a whole lot of support, weekly webinars to keep you on track. I deliver all of the webinars. Um, and then we have a sort of a Facebook support community with another couple of psychologists in there who are just helping people make the changes when the rubber hit the road. It is so cool. I, I, I've got so many thoughts running through my head right now because it's sort of, again, this convergence. One of the things that, came to mind then was I did a little research review on healthy every size mm-hmm. to see whether it, it actually promotes longer term uh, benefits with respect to particularly metabolic health. Yep, yep. And it was really interesting because one of the, the, the biggest outcome over several years was that people overwhelmingly felt supported um, that they, they lost that sort of weight centric focus yep. and their mental health improved drastically yep unfortunately metabolic health tended to decline this is interesting cliff i'd like i'd love to see that research i'll, I'll send you through the, yeah. the article and i'd love for you to you know pick it apart if i've got any, anything incorrect in there as well but what was interesting is that the sort of ideas that were pulled out were that there is incredible value in this but there still needs to be some structure for a lot of people and we can have both. It doesn't need to necessarily just be this one way without any kind of structure. And I often think about that, um, you know, what I say to my clients is, you know, we can have freedom within structure. You know, Absolutely. you're not cheating on your diet, diet, if you have a piece of cake. That's just a piece of cake. But you, there's also nothing wrong with having some structures in your daily eating that make your life easier that are yep. also healthy. Absolutely. And in that way, we sort of can traverse uh, all of that. So that's really interesting. You talk about community and support. But the other thing converging with that is I also did a little research review on the effect of social media on health. Yeah. And that's a really big thing at the moment because I know a lot of people are turning off social media and I get why. Yeah. But the research shows pretty clearly that a small amount of social media use tends to have pretty big health benefits excessive use you get that u-shaped curve where it drops off Mm -hmm. and why is that it's because when people have access to social media they have connection community and support and that's particularly true for people at risk because they can join communities that 
can help them. So, I mean, that's, I guess, what people are getting from the support community as well, is all of those things in one. <laughs> totally. And Cliff, we do have some people like, I don't have Facebook, but I'll just jump on and I just use it for just the support community. And it is, yeah. it's really cool, Cliff, because all of our, um, our previous programs, the longest one went for 12 months. But this one is a, um, it's a membership program. So people can start whenever they want. They can stay as long as they want. And so we're making a real effort to actually, it's not just a Facebook community where, you know, everyone just likes like the wild, wild west. Everyone says whatever they want. And if there's a terrible, you know, post, we pull it down as moderators. But we're actually helping teach the group how to support each other how to post mindfully how to to comment and offer suggestions mindfully and it is just the most it's the most beautiful thing like literally the group's only been going for three weeks now and some of the things that are that people are sharing and that the level of support in the community is just super special and as you know it's it's part of the therapy and and within that i think a, a, a real strength of our program is that we are willing to sit in the mess and the nuance. So for example, yeah. we had a, a, a client um, or a member, I should say, uh, post in the group uh, just a couple of days ago. Um, and she said, look, I've gone to the doctor. Um, the doctors suggested I'm in this BMI category. I, I need to get bariatric surgery. I'm thinking about doing bariatric surgery what do you think? Um, and I, I was talking with, we've got a couple of, uh, we call them transformation support coaches in there. So they're, they're, um, they're PhD level psychs and they're helping oh. out with the support. And, um, and, and they, one of them said, look, should we have this in here? You know, that's, you know, a, a triggering, you know, question for some people about bariatric surgery and a, a non-diet inspired program. And I said, absolutely. Because yeah. The, the reality is for that person, we do not know whether bariatric surgery is going to be a good option for her. Yeah. So we, we cannot give, we're not doing our job if we give her a blanket. Yes, bariatric surgery is the most effective way to lose weight and keep it off. Or if we give her a, a sort of a health at every size inspired, no, bariatric surgery is the devil. It's contraindicated in every circumstance. Yeah. We need to sit in that, uh, that, that mess and, and, and understand what is right for that unique individual. So I'm really proud that that's what we're, we're doing in the program. That's, that's really cool. You know, that, that brings to mind uh, an experience I had a little while back, a client of mine had wanted to, you know, go off and look at some, some different strategies. Um, they weren't really an active client of mine. They had been a previous client and they said, what do you think about me going off and, you know, learning more about haze and intuitive eating and empowered eating and all these various things. And I said, that's, that's fantastic. You know, fill your boots. I'd love you to go and learn more about that. And this client um, went and did that, found some really great advice, but also found some what I consider to be really poor advice because this client had, uh, has celiac disease and a intuitive eating practitioner had told her that she should not restrict any food. And she said, I, I have celiac disease. And, she's, and the, the practitioner had said, well, it doesn't matter. You should never restrict any food, including those that contain gluten. And I thought that was just a really stunning example of where absolutism really causes us to not see the forest for the trees. You know, it's very clear to me that we can have a, an approach that's not weight centric, that can encapsulate those best aspects of intuitive eating, but still is prudent with respect to something that that person absolutely needs to restrict. There's no doubt about that. That's just a medical reality. And I think that's where we get into trouble is when we try and get around medical reality with ideology or dogmatism. I agree with you 100%. I think that when we focus on things uh, in an absolute way, we lose our ability to see the nuances. We lose our ability to, to work with the person who's in front of us. And, and I talk about it um, uh, like what we need to do is favour evidence over ideology. Uh, fo focus on people over principles. Doesn't mean we don't have our ideology, doesn't mean we don't have our principles, but it just means that we're willing to hold them lightly enough that we can get the benefits of them, like you say, get the benefits of them, 
but also um, not be so rigid that we can't work with the individual person that's in front of us and support them. Yeah. That's such a beautiful way to put that, Glenn, to hold <laughs> your ideologies lightly enough. Yeah. Very, that's very, very cool. I mean, I think we've even, like, I've tried to do that in, in this discussion. Like, I've read a, a couple of um, pretty good controlled trials that show up to that sort of two-year mark post-intervention that that um, Hayes approaches um, are good for metabolic health um, in, in, in controlled trials. And, and I thought that's pretty impressive. But then when you say to me, well, look, you've done some research to show that, men, uh, you know, metabolic health might decline, I need to as a practitioner think well what does that mean for my knowledge and, and likewise you know I, I need to also see where you're coming from because if you've seen research that i despite a fairly extensive search did not come across then you know that's where we always need to be prepared to take on new evidence and shift our position um I, and this i you know i had this discussion with someone the other day this is one of the challenges we have when we become known in a community for a certain thing is it becomes very difficult then to shift position and it becomes very dangerous i think when that occurs you know i would always want to be i hope and i'm you know as guilty as anyone else of being dogmatic at times i would hope that i'm the kind of person who can sit back and say that's a really good point and then i'm you know going to shift my position based on that as we all should be, because uh, the our understanding of research changes over time and the actual research changes over time. So it yeah. should be, we should be, you know, hopefully if we do good evidence-based practice, we're getting it 80, 90% right. But yeah. we should be able to look back in five years and go, whoa, we, you know, that's not right and be able to shift. Absolutely. And people, people think science is all about answers, but 90% of science is asking questions. Yep. So, you know, most of yeah. science is about the unknown, exploring the unknown, creating hypotheses, being bold with your hypotheses, and then understanding that any answers you might come up with are not absolute answers. They are just parts of the puzzle. They are adding to the volume of knowledge. Yep. And it's always going to be very, very unclear and imprecise. Um, but, Glenn, I want to finish off because I know you're a very busy man, by asking you just a couple of quick questions. All right, give it to me. Um, for people who have been listening in, the book is The Insanity. Yep. The program you're running is the Transformation Support Community. That's it. Um, we will have links to those in the show notes, and I'll put those in our intro-outro as well, and um, our listeners will get a special discount on those as well, which is super cool, and I, I'm very appreciative of that. Um, you know, we've we talked a little bit about some of the challenges and I guess some of the opportunities within the, the health, the fitness industries. What are you most optimistic about in the world of sort of health and nutrition in the coming years? Well, it's interesting because I was talking to someone who's very, very big in this, um, this space. I won't mention who a couple of weeks ago, and they have been concerned like a lot of health practitioners have been about what we've been talking about today, this divide between weight neutral and health at every size practitioners and practitioners who put at least some focus on weight. And they said to me, Glenn, how are you feeling about all of this? And I've been, I've been doing a lot of training of, of psychs and dietitians, particularly. Um, and, and I'm actually, I'm really optimistic that we will find our way through that challenge because I yeah. think that, health practitioners and the clients they serve are smart. We know which way the wind blows. So we know how to take a message and decide which parts of that message are going to be helpful for us and which parts we can leave behind. And I think that, that these conversations that we're having about how we talk to each other and getting back to talking to each other in a collegial, scientific, exploratory way where we're sharing information I think that's starting to happen. So I'm very optimistic that that's going to continue to happen. I agree. And I, I, I'm, I'm very optimistic for the same reasons. And I, I'm seeing now that there are people who, you know, are starting to bridge that gap. Um, you know, 
Dr. Gabrielle Fundaro, um, Dr. Eric Helms, uh, you know, Shannon Beer, people like that, who you, you might look at and think that they are very much maybe in the performance realm or, you know, they might be concerned like Eric is with body composition. That's a sort of area of research. But under, underpinning that, there is a very flexible approach to nutrition, which is really, you know, in many respects, it's that idea of freedom within structure and it encapsulates a lot of the, the most important aspects of, say, a haze or intuitive eating approach. It's just not really seen that way. But, you know, I, I certainly see that there are a lot of practitioners out there that are kind of doing it. It's, it's, it's interesting because when I do, my say, my workshops for, for dietitians or same with psychs, um, I will, will say to them how many, and we get this in psychology, you know, in psychology, we get the, the cognitive behavior therapy advocates, you know, the, the broad shouldered 51% shareholder of psychological therapies, you know, with the, <laughs> the mountain of research. And then we get like the mindfulness based and the acts, you know, and, and what we see is that the, the guys at the top argue with each other and they think each other are wrong. And then, you, you know, that's quite adversarial. And then every other practitioner is just kind of like, well, I use a bit of that and I use a bit of that, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. It's actually not that hard. Oh, mate, it was so funny. We ran a conference a couple of years back and we had two people who you would think would be very different in their approaches. One was Michelle Yandel, the health coach here in New Zealand, who, you know, is, is awesome and, you know, is the founder of Empowered Eating and that kind of stuff. And then you've got Dr. Eric Helms, who's a powerlifter, weightlifter, and professional bodybuilder and works basically preparing bodybuilders. Wow. And I'll tell you what, their two talks were incredibly similar. They were just using different terminology, wow. but it was the same stuff. And it was so cool to see that because you could see the epiphanies that people were having listening to those two people. It's like, oh, right. They're saying the same thing. They're just using different terminology and it really cut through for people. And it was just so cool to have that. Um, yeah, so it was a, a super interesting. Super cool. Um, just a couple final ones to finish off. I really, I always like to ask people about what their, some of their favorite non-health things are. So oh, yeah. what is your favorite non-health book and why? Oh, non-health book. I tell you, I'm actually, um, oh, geez, I'm thinking I'm a big, big self-help advocate. I love digesting that stuff, but I'll include that in health because that's like mental health, self-development. Um, I love um, biographies and autobiographies. Right. I love, like I've just read Keith Richards' autobiography. Holy moly. That, These that'd guys be interesting. Just, yeah, they're just the lives that they have. And, the, you know, I think it's, again, like what we were talking about, you see a caricature of a person, but actually understanding the, 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 that person's life and their experience and that, that they are too complex to break down in black and white. So I love a, a good autobiography. Yeah. Um, and I'm, um, I'm actually, I, I find it hard because I, I like you read a, a fair bit of academic stuff. So I find it hard to read non-fiction. I'm oh, sorry, I find it hard to read fiction. Oh, but really? I'm reading, yeah, I do. I find it hard to read fiction. Um, but I'm reading that um, the old sci-fi book, Dune, at the moment. Oh, dude. It's so good. I, I get, I'm not exactly in your mode because I, I read a lot of scientific literature. And I listen to a lot of nonfiction. And I, the reason I listen to nonfiction is because I read so many papers that I kind of get burnt out on just the information. But for my entertainment, I read fiction. And I read between one and two novels a week. What? Yeah. And I, I love it. And I'm a, mess, I'm a fan of all sorts of fiction, but I love fantasy and sci-fi and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So I've read the Dune series and you know, all of Isaac Asimov's books. And I, I just love that stuff. So you, 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 I'm on track. Well, along with those studies, you're going to have to send me some book recommendations because I'm just delving into that world. Oh, will do, mate. I mean, that's why when, you know, people ask me what's the best sort of, you know, you get these questions and podcasts and things. What's the best purchase under $100 that you've ever made? For me, it's like Kindle. There's no doubt about it because I just yeah. can't oh, carry that many books around. <laughs> <laughs> Man, one to two books a week, you animal. But hey, people sort of look at that as some sort of, you know, virtue signal, if you will. But it's just because that's what I choose to do with my spare time. I garden, 
I, you know, do bonsai and I read books. It's pretty much all I do. <laughs> it sounds like something any psychologist would be happy to hear. <laughs> well, I need it, mate. With, but you um, can say it with a bit of spugness. Why not? Yeah, yeah. No, those are the things. Those are my... Um, See, I'm intractable, right? I, I never responded well to medication. So maybe that, that's my sort of bipolar treatment is all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, everything is therapy, right? Oh, mate, life is life. You know, and I think we, we separate health from life. We separate work from life. We separate treatment from life. This stuff doesn't end. I you know, and, and, and with respect to nutrition, I think it's really interesting because one thing that I think people struggle with is when am I going to find the, the right diet for me? When am I going to find the perfect thing for me? And one discussion I have with a lot of my clients and with particularly my students who are training to be nutritionists, because that's what I do, I train nutritionists, yeah. is, hey, when did we stop playing? And I don't just mean playing with, you know, like doing play. I mean playing with concepts, playing with ideas, experimenting with things. I try different nutritional strategies all the time just because it's fun. Like, I'm going to try that out. And I'm not trying to find the perfect thing. I'm just giving it a having a play. Yeah, exactly. And when we have that idea, we stop seeking the perfect and we just do. There's a freedom and an ease in that, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. So, final question. All right. Do you have, if you do, I hope you do, um, a favorite or a go-to tip or tool for living a better, healthier, healthier, happier life. Understanding that I know there's lots of things that we can do, but do you have sort of a go-to, a thing that you really value for yourself or for your clients that's a really good tip or tool? Yeah, this is a huge question, but I, I think that the, if I was to only give one tip, I would say to, and this sounds very cliche and very corny to say, but I 100% believe in this, I would say to listen to yourself. So many times it's cool. you know what the answer is if you're brave enough to listen to yourself. And yes. that answer might come with difficult consequences or a bit of effort or a bit of money or a bit of support that you need. But so often you know. You know I think that 10% of my work with clients is helping them understand things about themselves that they didn't know. Yeah. And the other 90% is just helping them actually connect with what they already know to be true. So it's just honoring that internal wisdom. Dude, that, that is awesome. And that is a fantastic way to finish off. I, I really appreciate your time. And I've got to say, I was feeling pretty tired today. I've had a you know, full on couple of weeks. Like I said, before we started recording, this year yeah. has kind of come up and hit me in the face. And it's all good stuff. But I was sort of thinking, this is going to be a bit challenging. But your yep. energy is infectious. And this has been a lot, a lot of fun. Um, so I really appreciate it, Glenn. I, I really appreciate you. I think you're doing great work out there. And um, for anyone listening in, check out the show notes because there's going to be some really cool stuff there around Glenn's book, Insanity, and the um, Transformation Support Community. So thank you, brother. Thank you so much for having me, Cliff. I've had a great time and it's been good to chat with you finally. Now we really know each other. Well, I'll have to get you back and um, I'm happy to come on any of your podcasts or anything as well. Deal. <laughs> awesome, bud. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. To sign up for member-only benefits, go to cliffharvey.com. Or to learn about studying to become a nutrition coach, health coach, or clinical or sports nutritionist, go to holisticperformance.institute.